the notion that the county has signed on to go in that direction, to have county-owned assets at any scale that encompasses a fiber-to-the-home system is new and a huge win. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm speaking with Shana England, the Director of the Digital Equity Initiative at CCF, which is the California Community Foundation. Welcome to the show, Shana. Thank you, Chris. Excited. I feel a little bit like a like a celebrity because I've been listening to so many of these podcasts. I was just going to say you're totally unfamiliar with the format. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shana, you and I have been, um, uh, I think, in, uh, in frequent contact. You're doing great work in California. We're uh, trying to support it, um, trying to help you out in some ways, also learning a lot about what's possible. And, and um, I'm definitely outsourcing my California brain to you um, and trying to understand some of this stuff rather than just diving in and in reading all the rules myself, which I should be doing, but uh, just, just there's no time for it. So, uh, but let me ask you: This is uh, tele, you're not one of the new people in telecom. Uh, you're one of those folks that I think uh, was in it, and then you took a little hiatus, and now you're back because it's the best thing ever. But um, you know, tell us your backstory quick. Because it's like the mob once you're in, you can't get out. Yeah, no, I I've been working on broadband issues off and on since 2005. So what is that? 17 years. Um, and really always in the context of I started as a community organizer and then did political campaigns um, and then really was working at the intersection of uh, tech and, and politics and civic engagement. And so either directly or indirectly have kind of been engaging on this connectivity issue for the better part of my career. And you've also been thinking about communications. And that's, I think, technically what your your LinkedIn profile might say, right? Uh, I don't know. I should go check what my LinkedIn profile says. Um, <laughs> it should say something like strategic campaigns or right. Like on, on LinkedIn, it has to say strategic somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I do uh, campaigns. And and I think a lot of times what that means is is thinking about comms in all the various ways. Uh, so I think, you know, they say if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a big group. You're you're now with a big group. Um, you're you're doing interesting work. You're putting together a, a really great um, effort there with different groups working together in, in L.A. County. Um, uh, what are you doing at the California Community Foundation? So the Digital Equity Initiative is, um, I, I, as far as I can tell, a very unique um, project that I am so lucky to lead uh, that is putting resources towards building and seeding an ecosystem of digital equity champions. Um, and really also including within that the access and infrastructure component of this question. So um, we have set out to, through grant making, public education, engaging in advocacy, kind of pulling in national, state, and other local networks um, and experts like yourself um, and and your colleagues there, (laughs) um, into really building community power around this issue. And so we've got... um, educational organizations, healthcare organizations. Uh, we have climate justice. We are about to pull in a big immigration organizing group um, that are interested in figuring out how to work together to address this kind of really cross-sectoral equity issue. Are there any signs that it's working? So many. <laughs> um, <laughs> Has your house been a, um, been a target of arson? <laughs> um, not 
Not yet. No, but... now, now you're thinking about it, though. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, no, but uh, every time our internet goes out when we're watching Netflix, he blames me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had really back in August, we had what I would call the first of um, what have been many, in some cases, surprising but exciting wins. So um, we have the LA Deal, which the, it's the LA Digital Equity Action League, uh, which is a regional broadband consortium, uh, which is a an officially sanctioned, appointed, funded organization of the California Public Utilities Commission that is intended to connect local communities, municipalities with the funding programs that are available through the, the Public Utilities Commission. California like has a bunch of um, of money that it collects to deal with uh, inequities in telecom, and that's dealt with through the California Public Utilities Commission, which created the California Advanced Services Fund that's involved with that. And yes. they created these, like, the idea of these regional groups that would then help to make sure that people actually knew how to use this money and access it. And that's what we're talking about here. Yes. Thank you for backing up. Yeah. Through the, the California Advanced Services Fund is, uh, is funded by fees through various telecom. And then that itself is split into a whole bunch of accounts. Um, and one of them is this regional broadband consortium account. Unless anyone thinks I know more about this than you do. The only reason I know what I just said is that you told me right before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Okay. So, uh, if I if I uh, am about to say something that contradicts something I told you before, I was right before. So, come on. Um, remind me. But so most of these regional broadband consortiums have been, um, you know, largely taken over by incumbent ISPs um, because everything through the Public Utilities Commission is really complicated. There's a complicated um, application procedure there. It's complicated to get money after you're funded, all of the things. Uh, and so um, typically these consortia around the state are kind of arms and legs for incumbent ISPs. Um, and there's one in Northern California that is in and in LA. Um, we wanted ours to not be. Uh, and so we partnered with uh, the LA um, Economic Development Corporation and an education organization called Unite LA um, to put together an application that was going to be community driven, community based. We were up against the standard industry funded application. Um, it had a lot of, uh, of advantages going in, including having someone who's kind of like on the inside at the PUC, trying to block them from being able to apply, trying to change deadlines, all kinds of things. But we won. <laughs> and so we have one of two consortium within LA that is a community driven instead of an industry driven regional broadband consortium that is a kind of direct connect to the PUC. And that has uh, really wide ranging implications that have continued to ripple and enable us to do and have even more wins. Yes, I mean, I think it's um, it's nice when the state is making money available to try to solve a problem if the people actually trying to solve the problem are the ones distributing some of that money. <laughs> Weird, right? It's great. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so that was, I mean, I think that was like one win that you described as um, you know unexpected. I think one of those things where you kind of find out about it last second, and all of a sudden you have to know what's going on, and then you're like, wow, we're actually we're winning, and then someone tries to take it away, and you have those nights of, are we really going to lose this? And then. And then you win it. Well, you might remember the day of the uh, the very first digital equity initiative cohort convening, which was last August. Um, 
and you were there. Yep. <laughs> we were downtown LA, um, and it was the day of the PUC vote um, on on this uh, on who was going to get that the RBC appointment. And literally that morning, we were getting intel that the kind of industry group was driving letters from like local electeds that they had relationships with, urging the PUC not to vote on it, or if they did vote on it, to not award it to the LA deal. Like as of that morning, it wasn't super clear what was going to happen. Um, and that vote happened while we were meeting. And so we actually got to celebrate that win together as a as a baby cohort. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like it wasn't too long after that, that there was a, a measure that came up before the uh, LA County um, uh, commissioners. Uh, and I think it may be worth just briefly reminding people that LA County is is possibly the mightiest political organization in the United States of America that would be called a local government. It's huge. It's um, you know it's bigger than most states. I think um, not just some states, but I think most states. Is that right? So just for to people have a sense, what is what is LA County? So LA County is ten million people. Has just for the county a thirty six billion dollar annual budget. Within the county, there are eighty eight independent cities. Um, and 65% of the county is unincorporated. So it is a massive, massive um, endeavor. And we have the two largest ports in the country. So something more than 50% of economic activity that comes in or out of the country goes through one of two ports in Los Angeles. So it, it is certainly uh, should be a state of its own and arguably a country. It would not surprise me if it was double digits percentage of the amount of concrete in the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> that could be, although, you know what? I am not going to endorse uh, that stereotype because we also have lots of green. <laughs> yes, yes, um, absolutely. But it, so the, the county commission um, is going to take up a resolution with three points on it. And I felt like, again, from my perception, there's uh, they have they have three votes they're going to have. And we're kind of thinking, all right, like, let's not lose all of them, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, so we had the, the county board had a, uh, a resolution in front of it. And again, just as a sense of scale. So there are five county board members um, representing all 10 million LA County residents. So these are folks who have just a, again, a massive footprint. And they had directed a, sort of a, a largely unknown division, the, inter the internal services division of the County of LA um, to come back to them with a report of what could be done with existing county resources and assets um, to solve the digital divide. And the, uh, the Selwyn Hans, who is terrific, um, came back to them and said, well, here's three things we could do. One is we could shovel money at the incumbent ISPs and essentially like buy contracts, buy broadband service for some set of people. They, he went out to the incumbents and said like, this is roughly the pricing and how many people we could serve for how long um, with that approach. Approach two, uh, we could put together a community um, Wi-Fi mesh network using county assets. So think libraries, county buildings, power poles, like all kinds of other things. And that we could put together, you know, again, we could before the end of the year have free service to somewhere upwards of, you know, 12,500 households who currently have no service at all. Um, and here's what it would cost. And then the third piece is we could start down the path of a community owned fiber to the home network and really start to think about what that would look like. 
And yeah, when we're going into, again, because all of this is so deeply understandable, viva good government, the way that this kind of policy get winds its way through is there is, it's called an ops cluster meeting. Right. Super yeah. clear. Yeah, um, those every Friday. <laughs> every Friday, yeah. Um, that is, you know, county board staff and historically lobbyists. Because uh, they're the only ones who actually can be paying attention to this and it's their job to show up at the ops cluster meeting. Um, so this when we were going into this ops cluster meeting thinking that we were hoping to be able to uh, win on the community network, we were hoping but thought we probably were going to lose on the um, fiber to the home. And we thought we were pretty sure we were just gonna have to hold our nose on um, just shoveling money to the ISPs. And we hoped we could at least just have some influence on um, kind of what the parameters of what that might look like. Well, well, I was just going to say, so uh, there's a quick pause here for um, for dramatic effect. Um, <laughs> people, we say the ISPs, the incumbents. I mean, we're largely talking about Charter and AT&T, I think, for the most part, yeah. although Frontier is in some areas. Verizon's still a power, even though they have they sold their, their plant to, Veri to uh, Frontier a long time ago. But they still have uh, wireless services that are available, and they still are, are quite big players. Is yeah. there anyone else? Nope, that's it. I mean, it's largely Charter and AT&T. Frontier has just a small footprint. They don't really show up a lot in these spaces uh, in LA. And then Verizon shows up a lot. And their primary argument is that like, um, essentially cell services broadband, and we should think about it as an alternative. Right. I assume they don't literally say, hey, we talked about how like all these people were going to have connections and we only signed up 172,000, but we might do more at some point. So we should all get tons of money. They don't they don't present it that way. No, interestingly. Weird, huh? Um. <laughs> so so anyway, that's, those are the cast of characters that are usually there. So so you decide that like, hey, let's let's make a thing of it. Yes. And get, just to be clear on like to kind of set the room. So Charter has four dedicated lobbyists just for the county that show up to everything, just charter, just to, for the county. So there's a, you know, a massive force here. There's been times when I, when I, when I go to one of these meetings in the evening and I'm like, I'm here on my own time because I'm already past 40 hours for the week. That person's either getting overtime or getting paid a huge salary to come to this. Like, it's just, it's, it's just, no, they're not underpaid. They're not underpaid. <laughs> right. Don't, we don't feel bad for them. Right. But also, I just want to say one other thing too, and that's that when I say, uh, whenever I say, what did you, when I, what did you do? I also make it clear, um, like, it's a, what did the coalition um, do? Yes. Because I know that you're um, careful not to either um, take credit or, um, you know, these things have to be locally rooted in order to succeed. So. Always. Yeah. No. And any time, and just to be clear in time, I'm saying I or we, it's not me. <laughs> it's uh, you know, this group of really kind of amazing activists and leaders that have stepped up to the plate on this. I support them, um, but it's these are their wins. So we, in that context, um, turned out, I think we ended up with 27 people at the ops cluster meeting, all ready to raise their hands and speak up um, from shared kind of talking points and urgings. Um, and we ended up kind of swamping the ISP voices in the room and changed the trajectory of how that went. And in the end, uh, the just throw money at the ISPs option wasn't fully adopted. What the, what the board ended up saying was the internal services division, Selwyn, is authorized to go negotiate for contracts and bring those proposed contracts back to the board to vote on specifically. So 
that's a huge win. Mm-hmm. We won outright on the community wireless network and we won outright on the fiber to the home study as well. So it came out of that ops cluster thinking like hopefully on one, maybe on two and like third is the last cause with like we won across the board. Uh, and then that went to the board vote and we won unanimously. And again, that was one where we did not expect to win unanimously. We thought um, for sure it was going to be four to one at best. Um, and it was five zero. So this is uh, this is the power of showing up, doing your homework, showing up. <laughs> 27 yeah, people, right? I would right? say like that. that is the theme, right? Is uh, uh, That's true at the county. It's been true as we've been starting to work more locally. And it has definitely been true at the Public Utilities Commission to date. We'll, we'll find out how true it is on a hopeful vote tomorrow. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it has been true as we've been really working in the legislature. Um, you know, what we've been hearing from staff and legislators is that, you know, they're hearing voices and stories that they've not heard before on this issue and that that does make a difference. And when we talk about um, L.A. County studying a, a fiber to the home proposal, um, we at least I interpret that as as uh, trying to figure out what would make sense. Um, I don't think anyone really anticipates that the county would be able to um, you know get the agreement of every last um, jurisdiction within the county to work together on a fiber network. It's more like I think looking that opportunistically. would be magical. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I think it's more like opportunistically to areas that need it. Right. And the the um, RFP for like the details of that study are still in development. Um, but I think that in the big picture vision is for that to look at what what really are the potential options. Right. Like it could be that there's some hybrid of the county works with as many cities that are willing and interested um, to build a uh, kind of a wholesale network um, that is also maybe some of the cities could operate on as ISPs. Right. It could be, yeah, just building out to areas that aren't covered and maybe taking advantage of some of the like federal funding account again, like an account within CASIF, which I know we're going to talk about, um, some of that last mile money um, to do that uh, in unincorporated areas. Like I, I think that there's a lot of leeway into it. But the win is just the notion that the county is has signed on to go in that direction, to have county-owned assets at any scale that encompasses a fiber-to-the-home system is new and a huge win. Yes, and the wireless option that you talked about is being implemented. And there's a yeah. um, um, right now they are seeking respondents to a request for qualifications, I think is what it is. Um, yeah. And so that is available. And uh, it was a good read. Um, it's pretty impressive what they're doing. Uh, for people who are familiar, it's actually, I think, the last appendix on one of the things is the part you're looking for as to like what the plans are, uh, actually. So um, yeah. if you want to dig around, look for the last appendix. It might be like R or something like that. <laughs> And I love this because this could, has the potential to go from a an organizing political win, what was that last October, to um, you know the timeline is that the people the first people to get service off of this will be as soon as this October. So to go from kind of early policy win and a year later to have people actually having their their needs met is lightning fast and really exciting. Excellent. 
Now, as part of all this work, you've had to also become an expert in general on what California is doing with the um, the federal broadband money, but also money that uh, Governor Newsom uh, had set aside for broadband before it was clear how much of the federal money would be coming in. Um, the uh, very impressive uh, vote from the legislature in California to uh, between the governor's office and legislature to appropriate money for broadband. Um, but we don't have time to like, explain all of it. But like, how is some of that money being spent in ways that you want to highlight? $3.25 billion of it uh, was going to an, an open access public middle mile network. Sort of like with regional broadband consortiums that we talked about earlier, it starts out as at the big level, like potentially transformative and very progressive. The devil is going to be in those details in terms of how much of it is ends up being built or bought and actually a public asset versus how much of it's going to be leased. Um, and again, ultimately just kind of shoveling money to private providers that we kick the hand down the road to 20 years from now when those leases are up. Um, but we'll see. And that's still kind of an active fight, but that really does have, have potential to be transformative. Um, and then there's uh, $750 million of the loan loss reserve fund, which hasn't even started on rulemaking yet, but also has potential to really allow, especially smaller localities that can't serve as their own bonding agencies and things um, to access funding and, and to be able to build out capital. I think those rules are written, are going to be written over the summer, right? Um, and into August, yeah. I think. I think so. That's so many moons from now, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know how many of us are going to be around still when that happens. I mean, listen. <laughs> um, and then the, there's two billion of it that was for last mile funding, and that is how the state appropriated um, the federal um, recovery money. And so um, that is it's two billion dollars in last in funding for last mile projects split a billion between uh, urban counties and a billion in rural counties. Um, and that is money that is all subject to rules set by the Treasury Department. That is also in rulemaking. We have final rules, hopefully will be voted on tomorrow. They were supposed to be voted on on April 7th. Which depending on when you listen to this, we're right now, we're recording this on the 20th. We're expecting the vote, the rules we voted on the 21st. People will be listening to this um, after that. And so we'll have to um, check out uh, some sort of online resource to figure out what happened. We'll come back. We have a temporal, check, check Chris's Twitter. We have a temporal um, <laughs> abnormality right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So two, two weeks ago, um, the uh, industry successfully derailed that vote. Um, in order to buy themselves time to remove uh, some really very reasonable affordability protections that are written into that. Um, but we are have been fighting back and, and hope that those that the vote will happen tomorrow, which will mean that again, that $2 billion can we can start to think about how that's going to be deployed. Um, and hopefully it'll have the affordability protections intact. Um, and then a bunch of other things that are in that that are not I mean, I'm sure they're controversial, but are not up for debate right now, um, are really exciting. They expand the definition of eligible area to something that uh, is going to be much less messable with from the incumbent ISPs. <laughs> going to be le less able for them to argue that, like, no, 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 we totally serve this because um, it comes down to a location level. It makes the challenge process where ISPs can challenge uh, grants going to municipalities 
much harder for them to win or even to bring. And so it focuses on unserved and underserved. It provides all kinds of, uh, of preference for um, municipal JP, uh, joint powers authority, which is a a weird California organization that allows uh, government agencies to work together for co-ops, for nonprofits. Um, it just allows for a lot more flexibility for those kinds of organizations to, to do work here and actually doesn't just allow it, but it preferences them in terms of the kind of how the points are allocated in the in the applications. So it's exciting. It's going to pass, you know, one, one way or another, these rules are going to be adopted. Hopefully, when people are listening to this, they have been adopted with some really important affordability protections intact. And, and just to drill on in that for a second, California is proposing that if you take this money to build a network, um, you have to have as one of your options a $40 uh, month option that will provide at least 50 megabits down, 50 megabits up. You know, it's one of those things that I feel like um, is really good. I mean, none of these things are super easy and none of them come with without trade-offs. But one of the things that um, I think is interesting is that, like, you know, a company like AT&T or Frontier, like, yes, absolutely, they should be forced to do this. Uh, some of the, the concern I always have is with uh, smaller companies, like um, you only have a few independent telephone companies, you have the electric co-ops. And um, I hope that the the PUC understands that if they're going to have that requirement, which again, I think is totally sensible, that it may have to offer higher levels of support to the rural networks to make sure that they're able to cash flow still. Um, because uh, $40 a month takes a long time to pay off a an expensive network build to a house well so the interesting thing about this is this money covers 100 percent that still boggles my mind i still like every time i see that i'm like that's a misprint <laughs> like no, why, why would it be 100 is that something that you think is a good idea like i'm again like i feel like there's some serious trade-offs with that like because I'm, I'm super annoyed whenever i see frontier or charter getting an award with public dollars to build a 100% supported network. I'm just like, no, like I want some skin in the game. Even if it's a local government that I love, I think there's got to be skin in the game. Yes and no. I, I think there's there are kind of a bunch of things at play. And as you said, there are trade-offs, right? Um, one is that I think when we say, okay, like you are applying for funding to build this network to serve an area that has either been chronically unserved or chronically underserved, um, we're going to make it as easy as possible and as mm -hmm. straightforward as possible to get that access built. Um, and that looks like streamlining the funding as much as possible, right? So as soon as you start to say, well, you need to find matching funds or there's, you know, bonding or, you know, whatever else, it adds a fair amount of complication and, and I think makes it more difficult um, and probably slows it down quite a bit. So, um, you know, in the interest of just like getting things built and as mm -hmm. streamlined and quick way as possible, I, I think that kind of 100% funding makes total sense. Um, I also like it and we'll see how this ends up playing out. Um, but it also means that you can actually put a bunch more of those public interest requirements on that money. And so is it true that it would probably be unreasonable to say a $40 a month, 50 symmetrical offering has to be included on this infrastructure for the life of the infrastructure if you weren't taking care of the uh, the kind of capital expenses and the debt around that that are normally on the balance books? Sure. In this context, there is no universe in which any system, like any good system should be able to operate profitably 
without capital expenses, but just maintenance and operating. So the only, I mean, honestly, then now knowing that that deeper picture, the only, I mean, the only thing I can imagine is that the cable and telephone companies are really against this because of the threat of the good example, because they know that if there's 2 million people and they're only paying $40 a month to get this like pretty high speed connection comparatively. Um, you know, um, you know, a five, 50, 50 over a fiber network is, is really um, better than many people experience on a much faster claimed cable network. They, they, they know there's going to be political pressure to say, you know, why do the people living over there get such a great deal? And like, we pay three times that amount, you know, in the year 2025 uh, for this, this craps connection that I have. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that the cable and telephone companies probably recognize that, that it's a real threat to them that just people knowing that you can get great service at an affordable rate. Well, I think there's, there are a few things going on uh, there. One is yes, of course. Like if you actually demonstrate the insane finances of broadband and how the profit margins must work, right? Um, uh, if that if that can be profitable, I, I do think that that opens up a lot of questions that the incumbent ISPs don't want to answer. Um, but there's also the reality that um, the big incumbent ISPs almost never participate in these projects, right? I think Charter, which um, uh, they're chief GR government relations person said in a hearing a few weeks ago that they had invested um, a billion dollars in capital um, in California. And in the same breath, we're really excited about the $13 million that they had in CASIF funding. And then they even had to return some of that because they couldn't complete the projects. I mean, they just, <laughs> the amount of, uh, and they're, and, Char and Charter is one of the only of the big ISPs that actually participates in these projects. The reality is that where they're coming from is if, if, if these smaller networks uh, end up being profitable and successful, which they will, you know, down the road, these larger networks will try to purchase them. And given that the, the policy says for the life of the infrastructure, that means that when they purchase them, they purchase them with these public interest provisions intact and they don't want to have to meet those public interest provisions down the road and so um, you know i think they're trying to to avoid that reality uh, which again i think i think a hard thing about talking about all of this stuff is it's just it's complicated and you have to sort of it's 10 steps down the road right well mm -hmm. so why should we care about that well here's the thing if charter buys this like small municipal network that was built with public dollars down the road because it's profitable there you're still spending a bunch of public money on private profit it's just down the road right and so you right. should still actually have those public interest provisions um intact it's not like they put that money back into the state coffers like that's just not how that works so that's one i think uh, a second is that and I'm, and I'm gonna try not to curse on your podcast but it's bs right like at a basic level it's bs like these companies are already providing faster service for lower prices. They're just providing them in wealthy areas. So as part of our work on this, we did an analysis where an analysis sounds like a, a very formal thing, a formal way to describe uh, what I'm about to tell you. So we uh, looked at some of the, the, the counties in California and we organized within some of the bigger cities in those uh, organized census blocks by poverty rate. And then we picked uh, literally at, at random, a residential address within some of the uh, high poverty census blocks and some of the low poverty census blocks. 
And what we found nearly universally um, for Charter and AT&T for sure, Comcast actually was less egregious on this, um, was that you, we found things like in Beverly Hills, uh, you know, famously <laughs> one of the wealthiest zip codes in all of California and in fact, in all of the country, um, you can get, they're offering their um, 400 megabit service uh, with no data caps for $45 a month. And they're offering gigabit service for, uh, again, no data caps for $80 a month. And those are two-year promotional rates. Um, in the like two miles away, three miles away, in some of the poorest, um, kind of like highest poverty census blocks, um, they are offering that same 400 megabit service for $65 a month and they are off or 70, excuse me, $70 a month. They're offering the gigabit service for $90 a month. And those are just one year promotional rates. And that plays out again and again and mm -hmm. again and again. And so right. um, it is already true that these companies are offering fast, affordable internet. They're just not offering it to the people who actually need the affordable rate. Um, and then the third piece is uh, that I think it's it's important, and I'd be really interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, but you know, they're they're trying to make an equity argument around this by saying, oh, well, this should be means tested. Like, if you're going to require an affordable, fast option, the only people who should get access to that um, are people who qualify. Which I just think is so interesting because, I, well, I tell you what. We can start to do that as soon as you start to have to show your 1040s in order to shop at the at the dollar store, right? Or like <laughs> if if you have income above a certain level, you're not allowed to buy the like want to get away fares on Southwest. Um, it's just such a it is a it is weird to me that it has so much traction to suggest that in you know a fast affordable option should not be available to everyone. And if you can afford to pay more for more service, you probably will, you almost certainly will. And if not, you have the bare minimum. The unspoken idea, I think, is that for middle income families, that competition would drive the price down. And yeah. and obviously we know that that um, it happens in some cases, but like usually what happens is that one of those companies gets bought by the other or something like that, or like the competition is pretty ephemeral and then uh, yeah. it moves on. And then you have people that are locked into the monopoly prices and then before too long, they'll be paying more than a hundred dollars a month. On another podcast, we can uh, totally nerd out on the history of franchises in California and sort of how that happened. But this is a case where, you know, the, the companies literally did just sort of like go through the state and flip franchises to create monopoly. Mm -hmm. And when you kind of look again through the places where that happened, you have places like um, like in San Diego County, um, Oceanside, technically AT&T and I think Cox is there. But the way that they ended up splitting it up is like you can get extremely crappy, very expensive service from AT&T. And like you can actually get pretty good affordable-ish service from Cox, but it's the way that they sort of split up the the franchises in the areas and where they serve that um, that causes that to be true. So it's effectively a monopoly, mm -hmm. certainly a monopoly for anything you would want. <laughs> right. The last thing that I want to um, raise is something just building up. I think um, it'd be awesome to get the CEO of like In-N-Out Burger or one of the, the larger California franchises. Um, 
to um, have a statement, like whenever Comcast or Charter, who are the ones that do it the most often? Sometimes AT and T will be like, you know, you know, we've invested a trillion and a half dollars over the last like hundred and six years that we've run this company in these areas, and I just want In and Out Burger to stand up and be like, we've invested like this much, and we demand that you close down the food pantries. You know, like <laughs> yes. we pay our workers twenty dollars an hour, and like here you have volunteers giving out free food in competition with us. It's ridiculous, and it has to stop. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the corollary <laughs> for sure. <laughs> this has been a fun conversation. They always are. Um, always. So, so thank you so much, Shana, for sharing that. I think it's going to be interesting if we can see some other states uh, picking up here and getting some good ideas from California and, um, and moving forward with them. Uh, but I think um, it is wonderful to have really positive things to say about uh, California and the legislature. I mean, there's certainly some criticisms that, that we have here and there, but like this is a state where AT&T was super dominant for so long. It is, it is a big deal that the legislature is actually doing something in the public interest on this issue because not enough people vote on it. Not enough people are paying attention and um, in any win that we get in these legislatures, we need to celebrate. So thanks for being so involved. I think it's important to also celebrate and and note that it is also a big deal that um, organizations like, you know, Great Public Schools Now in L.A., which is an education organization, has absolutely stepped forward and invested resources in really being leaders on this issue and educating all of their kind of parents and kids and teachers on, uh, on how to speak up for themselves here or the Community Clinics Association, which has also done the same. Um, I, just, I think that is also a win and, and one of the things that is making this moment different uh, is that it is, even while the kind of politics and politicians I think are gonna stop caring as much about this um, in short order, the digital divide is gonna stop being a thing we talk about in short order, um, I think it's gonna be because those local leaders have really stepped up with and for their communities um, in ways that at least I haven't seen before in doing this work. And I think it's really exciting. Yes. I think it's another model for hopefully other communities to emulate. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Chris. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.